Hi, this is Edward Bartholomew and John Wilson with Contrast Ratios. And we want to take a moment to recognize and thank NAILED, the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors, who are responsible for financially supporting this podcast and creating the platform. NAILED's mission is driving lighting innovation. And by supporting this podcast, they are putting their money where their mouth is. I know Edward and I appreciate that, and we want to say thanks to Nailed and also to all of Nailed's members. We hope everyone enjoys the show, and we really appreciate the support. Welcome to Contrast Ratios. This is our second episode, and we are honored today to have Kevin Hauser uh, be our guest today. Kevin is a professor at Oregon State University with a joint appointment in Chief Engineering at, at um, PNNL. He is also the editor-in-chief of like Lakos, Locos. Kevin, help me with that. Luko. How do you say that? Lucos. Lucos. Yeah, Lucos. I never have to say it, but I do read it. So, <laughs> the Journal of the Illuminating Engineering Society and uh, co founder of Lyrilux, which I would, I'm curious about as well. So, sure. with um, no further ado, um, welcome, Kevin. Thank you, Edward, and thank you, John. I'm delighted to be here. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Now, we know each other. I first met you, I think, on Project Candle. How many years ago was that? that 10 years ago? Yeah, no, more than that now. So let's more, see. Wow, I, wow. So I initiated Project Candle. So Candle is an acronym. It stands for mm -hmm. Collaborative Alliance to Nurture, Design, and Lighting Education. And so this was actually something I proposed. I, we, we can go back in my history here. I proposed that when I was a faculty member at the University of Nebraska. And wow. it was supported by the ILD Education Trust. And that mm -hmm. happened to be at a transition time when I was moving from Nebraska to Penn State. And so I moved Candle with me from Nebraska to Penn State, where I, where I um, directed that and ran that program for 10 years. And so we had support from the ILD Education Trust, support from the Illuminating Engineering Society for a number of years. And the primary support came actually through industry partners. And so that was mm -hmm. a really nice thing. And now it's still running. My colleague, Rick Mister at Penn State, is still managing Project Candle there, and I'm actually developing other things now that I've relocated from Penn State to Oregon State. That's great. Um, you know, that was an amazing, inspiring program, just working with the students and the things that we were doing, and we could get more in Project Candle. But I want to actually, um, first, I want to introduce my partner, John Wilson. Hey, John. Yeah, hey, Kevin. Thrilled, thrilled we can have you on the show. Uh, Edward and I were both, you know, when he when he suggested you and I looked over your uh, bona fides as he put them, I was like, man, this guy sounds amazing. And then uh, you and I, by happenstance, connected before this. What a, you know, it's the lighting universe. Um, how many times have people said, you know, it's like one degree of Kevin Bacon's before you run into somebody. Uh, yeah. And that was kind of the case when, 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 when we met. Um, I, I remember I, I found out we were going to be linking up, and I reached out to Edward and said, "Is this the same Kevin Hauser? There can't be two. There can't be two. Uh, but he's at Oregon State, and um, and and that's when I realized you were actually uh, in my backyard here in the Pacific Northwest, which was pretty cool. So, Small yeah, world. welcome, yeah. welcome to the show. Thank you. Yes. So, one of the reasons we wanted to bring you on the show is really has to do with. Um, with the editorial that you you put out in Locos um, about color rendering, and it may have an inherent uh, bias, and mm -hmm. I just kind of want to explore that and understand kind of what the issue would be and and how that would impact, you know, the way that we 
we understand lighting and the metrics of lighting? Sure. Yeah. So th th thanks for that question. And so um, the editorial that I wrote, well, first of all, I, it's a real privilege for me to be editor of Lucos. And one of the privileges I have in that role is that I'm able to write an editorial on a quarterly basis. And so usually the topics that I try to take on are topics that I think are of interest to the lighting community and that will if I do my best effort, will provoke thought and provoke conversation. So I'm delighted that you read that and we're having this conversation that follows up so that we can kind of untangle it and bring it to a wider audience. So it's fantastic. But the, the, the thing that I had been thinking about for quite some time, and not only me, others on the IS Color Committee and you know others more broadly, is the fact that, well, a couple things. I think one of the most important thing we put in buildings are people. Right. We're, let, we're ultimately lighting for people. And I think a lot about color rendition and most of the color rendition quantities that we deal with now are really object oriented. So apples, fruits, vegetables, uh, man-made clothing, paper goods, you know, all that stuff. We think about the rendering of that. And to me, there's been less interest and less emphasis placed on the color rendition of people, meaning skin complexions, human skin complexions. Mm -hmm. And it's not because of lack of interest. I mean, everybody recognizes that people are important in buildings and the rendition of skin is important in buildings. But in, if we look at our metrification of that, we don't really have a metric or a measure for color rendition of skin. And even in the measures that we do have that look at that, um, and we look at things like color pre preference and color preference for skin rendition, they are not representative of skin broadly, but usually representative of a subset of skin. Uh, and so it seems to me that that is an opportunity and also a limitation in current metrics and our understanding of how light color impacts interior environmental perception. Now, clearly there's a billion dollar cosmetics industry out there that would definitely benefit from understanding this. But when I think about film and television, um, especially filmmakers have always struggled with how to render especially darker skin tones and, and even Asian skin tones, how to make that richer and, and more vibrant. Um, so is there something we can learn from other industries in, that, in their efforts? Probably, I think so. But I mean, I think we could even look at the history of some of that and we can ask some questions, right? Because Absolutely. my understanding, I'm not an expert on film, but my understanding of film and some cameras or some uh, emulsion layers is that they're really not optimized around skin more generally, but they're optimized primarily around white skin and adding a little bit of red enhancement that seems to be preferred by Caucasians. And so um, if we look back on color preference research, the same is generally true there as well. I mean, most participants, subjects in color and color preference research have been um, ha have been white, frankly. And there's been quite a few studies that have been done with Asian observers. But the only real understanding we have about color preference for skin under different light sources, except under, you know, very small number of participants has to do with white skin tone reflectance and Asian skin tone reflectance, you know, and even if you get into Asian, I mean, you can subdivide that further, right. but it generally is Absolutely. subdivided yeah. further. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Even so, in European, and, I mean, you could divide that as well, you know, uh, Northern European yeah. versus Southern European. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, so, you know, I've thought about why that is. And I mean, I tried to raise some of these points in that brief editorial, um, but, you know, we can get into a little bit deeper here. You know, why is that? Well, I mean, it's, I mean, you, you probably have to go back decades or centuries why that is. I mean, ultimately, it's structural why that is. Sure. I mean, where's sure. the research yeah. primarily occurring at universities? Who's at universities? Sure. Well, it, right. it, you know, so who's available to be participants? Who's designing the experiments? Right. You know, and, so you have a, and, and a biased sample set type of thing. Yeah, right. And, and so and so it just gets traced all the way back. Mm-hmm. So so when you think about what are the implications of something like this? If, if you know, one of the questions, and I think, John, you also had the same question. Um, do we have a specific rendering for one set of people and another one for another set of people? Um, what It's ultimately how we reflect it back and, and what makes us look attractive. But that could be very culturally specific. Is that what would you say? Yeah. So, I mean, what's what's actually interesting is if we look at skin tone reflectances, and there's a number of really good databases of skin tone reflectances where we can look at essentially um, the reflectance on a wavelength by wavelength basis, like a spectral power distribution for a light source, but a spectral reflectance distribution for a skin tone. Now, most of those reflectances are taken like on the back of a hand or on you know the inside of an arm or something like that, which I would suggest is perhaps not the most important part of the body to be measuring. Probably we want measurements on a person's face because that's what we're looking at when we're communicating. Um, But what we see there is it's there's surprising similarities in the overall shape of those skin tone reflectance functions. You know, generally, regardless of how light or dark a person's skin is, we reflect more long wavelengths and, and fewer shorter wavelengths. And there's a couple inflection points where there's kind of a dip in a curve that tend to be consistent across many different skin color types. And so the idea behind that was because the profile of skin reflectance is so similar, like maybe it's possible to select a small number of skin reflectance samples to be like broadly representative of a wide number of skin types. But the thing that that tends to miss is that we don't have uniformity in our skin reflection. You know, like if you look at a, you know, somebody, somebody right. could have a freckled face, you know, you could have modeled parts, you can have age spots, you, you know, the contrast. Different times of the year, I have different tan, tan lines too. So. Absolutely, right? And, you know, there's different contrast between different parts of the face, like under the eyelids, the nose, the lips, the cheeks, um, you know, and this doesn't even get into different facial structures and how those different facial structures interact with like the inner reflected light that goes on in the skin and how the direct light, you know, some people have more deep set eyes, some people have shallower eyes, some people have high cheekbones, and that changes all the shade, the shadow, the highlight, as well as the the color rendering characteristics of skin. And, you know, we've really not untangled these elements. Um, And so, you know, I, I just think there's a great opportunity to understand this more deeply. I feel like we as in the lighting community, I mean, I, I love where this is going, but the more you're describing this and you're getting into detail, Edward, I keep going back to that comment you made about the cosmetics industry. And I'm like, mm-hmm. listen, I'm stepping way out of my element here. Okay. So um, I'm preparing myself for like, like, I know I'm not an expert in this, but I know enough from walking down the aisle at Target that they don't sell one compact for black people and one compact for white people. They got a spectrum. And then every one of those has like this like 
panoply of colors that go together that allow you i mean it's like they have they have taken that concept that you just described and there it's profitable right to be like it's yeah yeah no it speaks to also if you look at the, the, uh, the recent census that came out and uh this basically how how we're blending as a population in america and how you know so you'd imagine that's an impacting skin tone as well. So we're no longer as homogenous and, and as, as we used to be. We're, we're much more blended in, in many ways, too. So to speak to your point, John, absolutely. Cosmetics figured that out. They know how to target that. And there are absolutely black cosmetics and there are Asian cosmetics and, and there clearly are white cosmetics. But, they're, but they've, they've figured out that market <laughs> to the tune of billions. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. It makes so, you wonder. I, I, I'll bring gonna... that up because it seems. Go yeah. ahead. Go ahead. Now I was wondering if there's going to be a subset within a, you know the TM30 type of committee that will be focusing on faces and looking at, you know, how do we, what what is the implications of this? So so I so I hope so. And there there is there is actually a subcommittee on TM30 that has in the really early days of thinking about this stuff. Now, of course, to do this work, it takes resources. And so first we're sort of in the ideation phase and in the uh, experimental development phase. But like ultimately, if this research is going to happen the way that I hope it does, it can't happen with a bunch of white people running the experiments or, can, or even conceptualizing the experiments. Mm -hmm. It really has to be a multi racial and multicultural group that's doing that because even within race you have different cultures mm -hmm. and something like color preference for skin tone is not is not only a race-based idea it's definitely culture-based you know what you grew up with is going to affect what you like mm -hmm. and so what you're exposed to is going to affect what you what what you like you know so we have these sort of memories you think of food memories well i think there's lighting memories that are like that as well and so um i mean for example if we take a uh an asian american that was born and raised in the us and someone who was born and raised in china they may have different preferences even though they're they're racially comparable they're culturally dissimilar and that could lead to different uh, likes and dislikes so Kevin, let me let me ask let me ask this. Yeah, let me let me let me ask this. I want I want to pry back on the cultural thing a little bit and and get your help 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 me understand this or just um I guess there's two questions here. The first is um so I've heard people say I've heard people describe broadly uh, well there's a cultural uh preference between um some Asian cultures that prefer this higher Kelvin temperature versus uh what we hear in America like you know around the whatever 3000 K. And then I, I guess in my head a little bit, I'm like, or did they ever have a choice? Like, like, was there, if, if power prices were super high and if you had a semi authoritarian, like government, you know, like, uh, backs the major manufacturers and it's cheaper to make these really super bright blue lights and electricity is really expensive. You might not have ever had a choice. Could that still be like, well, it's still cultural preference because they grew up with it. And so, I mean, just help me unpack that a little bit more. Do we actually have studies that are like, yeah, we took 10 Scandinavian kids, but they all picked the same light? Or is it the subjective thing that isn't yeah. as so it's, easy to put in a box? Yeah, so that's a great question. So I have two, part, two parts to my answer here. One is sort of the idea of preference. And um, 
you know, preferences on the on the one hand, on the surface, it seems like a rather easy thing to unpack. You, you just ask people, do you like this? Do you like that? Which one do you like more? To what degree do you like it more? Um, but but there is an inherent subjectivity associated with preference. And there's also a, a sense with which you can't really be right or wrong with preference because it's just your preference, right? You know, and, yeah. and we are fickle beings. Um, and so trying to, you know, slice that up and determine group preference can sometimes be complicated. But what's interesting about that is that if we have an intentionally structured participant pool, then, and, and we do this in a statistically appropriate way, it's surprising that we actually can ask these questions that seem like you can never find a group response for that question, but in fact, we can reliably find a group response. Now, of course, it's a statistical distribution, so there's going to be right, people that outliers. are over in one mm -hmm. or the other that don't fit, mm -hmm. but you know, you're going to have this big hump in the middle that applies to a lot of people. Now, here's the thing with color preference research and a lot of just more generally color or uh, lighting research in general. Our participant samples are convenience samples. And what I mean by that is we're just going out and saying, who's available right here? So right. if it's done Which at university, graduate students, right. yeah, it's, it's a bunch of 20 year olds and 19 sure. year olds that are young right. and healthy, um, yeah. you know, and, right. and that's just, and that's just how it is. And so like, if we want to properly do this type of color preference for skin research, it can't be a convenience sample. You know, so like, like I've yeah. thought about this from my position at Oregon State, like, how would I do this? Mm -hmm. Well, I probably need to collaborate with um, a historically black um, university, for example. Try Morgan I, State. I, I just started teaching at Morgan State. And we would love to participate in something like that and collaborate with you. So absolutely. There, there, there and, yeah. And, and, and recently, and, Morgan State has not really participated as a lighting within the lighting community. They've never been funded. HBCUs have never been part of that conversation until recently. So so hopefully there's some gains that this population now will be accessible and we could start yeah. working with those students, which would be wonderful. Yeah. And, and, and see and see that I think that's exactly what needs to happen. So that they're at the table at the conceptualization of the experiment and the research and the work, they have you know, we have these groups have buy-in. So like at Oregon State, we have um, a large multicultural institution that has all these different organizations um, for um, Middle Eastern students, for American Indian students, for Asian students from various like Southern Asian and, and other places in Asia. You know, so I, I can imagine partnering with them so that they're also involved and so that they're also Absolutely. assisting with the recruitment of participants, you know, so participant right. recruitment is no longer just like, you know, what grad students, friends, but, but they're actually like, we intentionally got 30 people that fit mm -hmm. this particular category, mm -hmm. another mm -hmm. 30 that fit this particular category, another 30 that fit this particular category so that we can look at how those different categories of observers respond differently to, to the questions that are being asked. So you could really define skin tone specifically by its spectral its spectral profile, correct? And yeah, so yeah. you could kind of remove the racial element and, and the cultural element and really saying we're looking for this, this specific sample set from this type of spectral distribution type of thing, right? Yeah, I, I broad, broadly, I think that's true. However, 
you know, and this is the sort of the scientist coming in of me coming in, you know, <laughs> as you get deeper and deeper, you can imagine more complex ways of asking questions sure. and try to untangle yeah. it. And, and what I mean, like, um, like, like there's certain times where color rendering of skin tone is just going to be pretty benign. You know, like, like right now, you, the three of us are just talking, right? Um, but actually, let's I think it's pretty critical right now, actually, because when yeah. I think about everybody doing Zoom, no, I think about the light sources and everything like that, and having the appropriate light source to render us on these, you know, I call mm -hmm. these miniature TV studios that we have. Um, I don't, I never feel satisfied, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but Kevin, I'm looking at you. I'm looking at you. Go ahead, yeah. go ahead. But, sorry, sorry, John. I was going to say, like, if we if we like ramp up the stakes though a little bit, right, we can right. think about a situation where um, there, 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 I don't know, there there might be like conversations that cause somebody to blush, or mm -hmm. you know, like th those kind of details. And so, like, mm -hmm. could you introduce those type of elements into an experimental context so that an observer could could like either see or not see that? depending on how the light was being rendered. And so like, I think observation of skin tone mm -hmm. is, is a method of communication. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's part of our verbal communication, looking at Absolutely. another person mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. not just seeing eye contact, but seeing like, are they flush? Are they washed out? You know, are, are they sickly? Are they healthy? You know, mm -hmm. so I, mm -hmm. I think, um, and this is why like, even measuring skin tone, it is dynamic. Like as our blood flow changes, our skin tone changes. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we can measure skin tone, but we we really need more than one skin tone measurement at different times to like fully capture that whole thing. Well, I know that uh, th these type of observations are critical for pathology, understanding how sick people are and, you know, how what they look like. And so darker skinned people may not may not indicate to certain doctors who have a certain preference doesn't show to be that sick or that people can't identify um, what's going on for them physically because they don't really mm -hmm. understand how that skin tone changes and what the cues are for that. So when um, I know there's been some research on that in that regard, so there are some serious health implications to this. Yeah, sure. In fact, uh, we don't use it in the United States, but in Australia and New Zealand, they use an index called the Cyanosis Observation Index. And uh, for light sources that are used in healthcare facilities, they have to have a Cyanosis Observation Index of a, of a certain value. Um, and basically what that allows a trained medical professional to do is to visually observe whether or not a participant or not a participant but a you know a patient i guess um might be suffering from from cyanosis and i mean in the united states health professionals are still trained to do that however usually a pulse oximeter is used you know one of those little things with the red light mm -hmm. that they put on your finger mm -hmm. and it measures mm -hmm. um you know oxygenation of your blood um and interestingly enough a lot of leds that are available today would not have an appropriate cyanosis observation index because it requires long wavelength radiation and a lot of blue pump LEDs you know, kind of like cut off right. that cut off. long wavelength deep red radiation and are not truly suitable for observing cyanosis. So does this also speak to, we always reference incandescent as being the true perfect source. And, and in that way, 
we've been trying to replicate that with LEDs. Have we has technology gotten better with with solid state lighting that we can we can get to a better reference source that can have at least a general rendering of people in in, in a good healthy way. Yeah. So. Um... I'm a bit, I, I love LEDs. I think what we can do with LEDs is amazing. Um, but I, I hear about I tend to, well, actually, it's where we are, where we can go, and where we will go that, that I don't really know, like where we can go and where we will go. Those are two different things, and I'm not really sure. I do know I can see some products that are out there in the market today that certainly have that deep red and that long red radiation that are, are, are quite beautiful. Um, I also see a future where color mixed LEDs are not just a peripheral and fringe phenomenon, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. are much more mainstream and much more common. And I see that happening for a couple of reasons. You know, one being with the color mixed LEDs. And here I'm talking about, and I don't just mean like red, green, blue or red, green, blue, cyan, mm -hmm. but you know, things that have like maybe five, seven, eight, even more emitters than that, that we can really have granular control over the spectral power distribution. And according to the Department of Energy, at some point, those will be more efficacious, more lumens per watt than a phosphor converted LED because we won't have the down conversion losses associated right. with conversion of direct emission to phosphor emission. That's not true today. So, but if we look at long-term entitlement of efficacy, direct emission is at some point, maybe 2028, maybe 2030, but at some point it will be more efficient to do just direct emission and mix it together. Um, well, and, and then the, theater does all, this, doesn't, doesn't, doesn't theater already the, do this? The, theater's already doing it, but at lower efficacy. So mm -hmm. lower efficacy than phosphor conversion. So, so they're prioritizing the granular color control as a higher priority than efficacy. We're mostly in architectural mm -hmm. lighting. We're still primarily- right, prioritizing higher efficacy over that granular control of color color. And so, you know, and then we think about so getting back to something you said earlier, Edward, if I can, if I can pull back to it, um, you know, if we have this, I don't know, like these, these polychromatic environments with a wide range of people in them, uh, you know, what do we do about color? If color rendering of skin is our highest priority, like, do we have like, like here's your best average spectral power distribution to do it, or here's your best spectral power distribution for you know this this or right. that class of people. Right. You know, right. I don't actually know the answer to that, but actually I think that's a real opportunity if you can begin to tailor the lighting to mm -hmm. a particular population, and even more so if you can give people options. You know, like you know they they can go home, they can take this thing out of the box, and they can oh you know. I'm going to set it here. Oh, yeah, I look good. You know, that's the one I'm going to use. Well, dressing rooms are the, the classic home. example. I was thinking, you know, how much money is being made. You make the sell in a dressing room. And if people are able to put their uh, faces and get a reading, and then suddenly the lights will actually respond to that, whatever that reading is, and make them and enhance them, that would sell whatever they're wearing. So they would actually know what they're wearing is going to be enhanced and look beautiful. I, I think that's... I know that retail makes all their money in the dressing room. And yeah. hey, likewise, Edward, I can see that just as likely once your profile is set or you pick your lighting profile, I can see every smartphone selfie applying that oh, yeah. light 
uh, through its filters. Yep. Okay, or right, right. Absolutely. But I, I, I want to go. I want to go to this real quick, though. I, I, it, it seems to me like Kevin, is there? Do is is it conflicting? Um, so, boy, you made me think of a whole new class of lawsuits that are going to get opened up. Yeah. Like in the personal <laughs> home, when people are picking this for their home and their preference in their closets. There's no problem here. Like more power to them. I love it. Like you, every, you should feel beautiful in your home. It's super funny that we've spent so the last, I feel like the whole time I've been in lighting people, the CRI conversation is about what color is that sweater in your closet versus when you walk outside. And it's not about what color is your face. Like that is actually right. mind blowing to me. But when you talk about, you say, you know, we've got this multi-use space and you could either have a we hey we kind of picked this full spectrum that we think works for everybody or we could pick hey uh it's a predominant like there's mostly peachy creamy color here we're gonna set it we're gonna set it to w1 and just you know like as soon as you're in a common space i feel like people are like nope uh or 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 are we going to a world where like when i walk into this conference room i expect those lights to change and does and this whole concept... who's in power who's ever in power how, gets to choose right how, well that's the lawsuit that's why there's going to be lawsuits how does this also affect like aren't we trying to take these multi-use spaces to a circadian tuning um you know the lights the, the we're, we're trying to change the tuning that direction is there interference between that objective and what you're describing um do those do those two things exist in harmony in the future or are, are those battling for what we prioritize in that mixed use space yeah. Have we introduced so, a whole so, other factor in here? Yeah, yeah actually, I, I'm glad, John, that you introduced that factor. It is a whole other factor. As far as, so let, so there's two kind of things. That let, me, let me kind of take them one at a time. So about that, um, you know, what do you do when you have a bunch of people of different backgrounds with potentially different preferences in the same environment that might want their skin to look differently than the person next to them and, and so on? I mean, it's a really good question. I do not have an answer to that, except I'll, I'll sort of give you a cop-out answer, which is to say that nobody really gets fired for light sources that specifying light sources that have super high fidelity. Um, you know, so like a, a color rendering index above 95 or a, an IES TM30 fidelity score above 90. You know, it's it is just it's flat out safe. OK, it's safe. <laughs> yeah. Now, yeah. And, and if and if people don't want to study color and they just want to say, like, I want something that people are going to walk in and there's nothing to look at here. I'm not offended. I'm not particularly happy by it, but it's mm -hmm. just fine. Just go with RF above 90 or CRI above 90 and, you know, it's going to be OK. But that is suboptimal. And, and, and I, I really want to make this point that that's suboptimal. And what I think is counterintuitive is that there are many situations we can go to a lower fidelity, a lower fidelity, you know, drop your fidelity from 90 to 80 to 70 even wow. by intentionally adjusting the spectrum to enhance certain colors and desaturate others. And the result of that is people are like, wow, this color is amazing. It is so much better than it was before. And that is like the non-intuitive thing that, that is absolutely out there, but is absolutely true. So it depends on what your priorities are. If your priorities are high, fide high fidelity, um, you know, go with the go with a light source that's like, you know, incandescent like or daylight like, high CRI, fine. Um, but if you're if your goal is like high preference or mm -hmm. high vividness, then you need to relax your fidelity so that you can get these other benefits that otherwise would not have been available. 
And so I guess what I would say is, is if you have that sort of general office environment that that has people of many different um, you know races and backgrounds, go with high fidelity. You know, but mm -hmm. but if you have a a special environment, you know, where a you know a cultural community is going to greet or your own private home. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Th then go with preference for that group preference. Mm -hmm. And then now you have an opportunity to have, you know, one particular light setting for one group and another for another group. And now you, mm -hmm. you've actually, um, you know, provided granularity of control. And I, and what I think is actually an opportunity for lighting to do something value added. Yeah. Very yeah. interesting. Yeah. We've been talking about the, 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 the value of lighting. And I think, no, I don't think anyone's really been looking at what you're what you're talking about, Kevin, at all regarding adding that type of value. And it's, I, I could definitely see that it's going to be application specific. You know, um, I, I, first place I went to is a barbershop and barbershops in black communities are very important and their lighting is usually horrible. So <laughs> I could see where they would want to do really, we could do some really interesting lighting and make these spaces and beauty beauty parlors as well make them very specific to the culture that's actually going there and make these people celebrate these people, make them so beautiful. And, uh, and it'd be a subtle subconscious type of thing. They'd look at each other and they'd see this, they'd recognize that, wow, you're looking very radiant and healthy today, you know? So I so, think that'd so, be a so very powerful thing. I got I got to build on that with one of my silly ideas. I, I had this idea long ago. So for any type of beauty parlor or salon or like that, you have one entry, and a separate exit. Okay, so you know, going one way out the other. But in the entry, you put terrible lighting. Okay, so like just make you look sick when you're walking in. And in the exit, right, just the beautiful, opposite. right. You know, it doesn't matter what you do. All the persons in there, love... they look sick walking in. They look great walking out, no matter what. Right. right. Put the mirrors up, and they just look. Oh, I look yeah. wonderful. This is awesome. Totally. totally. Well, that's the thing about dressing totally rooms not. that you can fool people. Do the exact same thing. Just make them, you know, outside the dressing room, make it really crappy, and then when they walk in with that dress and or that outfit, that shirt, they look. Wow, I look great. You know. Of course, and they walk yeah. back out. <laughs> Got to make sure they keep going. <laughs> so, so, Edward, one of the one of the early uh, one of the, we go back to the early days of that. Um, Bill Thornton, who has has since passed, he's the inventor of the triphosphor fluorescent lamp, and he developed a lamp for at the time it was Westinghouse called the Ultralume. Um, later, you know, Westinghouse was acquired by Philips, now Signify, all that stuff. But the, the that Ultralume lamp was developed in in parallel with sears stores and they were developing that for sears for exactly the type of reason that you're talking about which was they were looking for a the sears was having a lot of returns associated with people buying things in the stores taking them home right, not liking the out. color having a color shift right. and if we think back to that time period you know the color quality of fluorescent lamps compared to incandescent that was in homes was very very different like a bigger delta mm -hmm. than we have now mm -hmm. and that ultralume and the triphosphor fluorescent lamps obviously ended up being like a massive success story for mm -hmm. applied lighting moving the lighting industry away from calcium halophosphates with really poor mm -hmm. color quality into triphosphorofluorescent lamps, which had much better color quality. And I mean, that that's a really huge like technology story that I think people newer to lighting maybe aren't aware of. Um, but even that technology, it was essentially taking uh, rare earth phosphors that were originally developed for television screens and applying them in fluorescent mm -hmm. lamps. 
And so the lighting industry really benefited from the investment that went into a consumer product that people were willing to pay for, a television, into mm -hmm. one that people were less willing to pay for, a light bulb, um, mm -hmm. but they got good lighting as a result. Wow, that's a that's that's incredible, and I could, you know, it makes me think of the spaces that where a premium of lighting has has not caught up. So clearly, in retail, having a premium quality lighting would be helpful. But when people go home, I don't think people really have that. I don't think, you know, I think about in my house, I have um, LED lamps that I put in about six, seven years ago. And they're crappy. I mean, I mean, I'm sure I got phosphor <laughs> degradation and all this. I'm sure that it's really bad. And so when people go from, from, from their, I don't think they know, it's this lack of knowledge that they go mm -hmm. from very poor environments at home, and then they go into a retail environment. That's a huge discrepancy that's as as dramatic as as what what he also provided as well. I think we're we're at that point. I really do. And think about yeah. the first generation of LEDs. They were really poor, and we're seeing those you know really the results of that. Yeah, we're seeing what's happening with that. I know. <laughs> so, Kevin, so maybe I, we're I at the like tipping point. I, I um, I'm anticipating you saying uh, use used a phrase earlier. Uh, you didn't call it marginal. You said it's you said suboptimal. That was a nicer way of saying it. But I feel like uh, so I, I got to ask this question and forgive me. So I told I told Edward one time. Uh, one of my superpowers is just asking dumb questions, but recognizing this might be not the optimal answer, but from a practical standpoint, okay, from a practical standpoint, like, does the fact that we now see a whole lot of commodity products um, that offer adjustable CCT on them, and people seem to have pretty dramatic, like, oh, my God, like, I hate that. But yes, put it there, set it. That's what I want to see, whether it is my objects or or whether it's skin tone, right? If we if we start talking about, yeah. you know, skin rendition, does does that move the bar at all in practical terms for you? Is that a move in the right direction or is that still like missing the point? Is that still like, like, no, we got way more farther to go or, uh, or like, does that solve a lot? Does that solve some of this preference and personal control question? So, all right. So let, let's, let's unpack that. Great question. So you're talking about CCT tuning, right? You know, so we go from warm to cool. We changed chromaticity or correlated color temperature. I think I think it's great. You know, I have no problem at all. I don't have any problem at all um, with doing that. However, I will say that you know we have in our visual system chromatic adaptation, and so there is sort of a parlor trick aspect to correlated color temperature changes because when we see it happening, it looks very dramatic. But after only about a minute or two. We're essentially fully chromatic ad adapted, and it's just our new sort of white light point. And so, um, and that's, and by the way, that is very, very different because while we can chromatically adapt to changes in correlated color temperature, we can't adapt to poor color rendering. Poor color rendering mm -hmm. sticks yeah. with us. And so, in many, in many cases, if we think about this, when people are looking at the CCT, they might be looking at a, a, you know, a wall or a desktop or something like that, and they're seeing this very dramatic change. And maybe they're not really focusing on the color rendering change that might also be happening during that CCT change. So there's sort of a salience to correlated color temperature that is like immediate and obvious, but probably, in my opinion, because of chromatic adaptation and because of the fact that we can't adapt to bad color yeah. rendering it's actually less important than the color rendering the quality color rendering. of the light source which is really and an have we, dimension. 
So have we compromised color rendering because we've allowed that type of, you know, uh, tunable color type of thing? Has that has color rendering suffered because of that? Has it suffered? Um, I, I don't know if it's suffered, but has it been sort of like pushed to the corner? Maybe, mm -hmm. maybe, maybe it hasn't been given the prioritization that it mm -hmm. that it deserves. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, the the future that I would imagine is more of I mean, I would like granular control of color rendering more so than I would like granular control of of correlated color temperature. But you don't have that commercially. I mean, there are some lighting products that I can buy that I can then manipulate as an experimenter to do that. But as far as a commercially available solution that's turnkey, it's not out there. Kevin, you know what's so funny? As you're describing this, as so many of the things you've described today, I'm like, man, I have that in my grow light, but I don't have that in any other forms of lighting in my house. I can control with my grow light the intensity of very specific wavelengths, but I've never once thought like, this is actually what I deserve, or better yet, this is what my wife deserves in the bedroom. You know, like all that, like looking. Right. Yeah, well, it's also time, time dependent. It's time dependent too. So we may want to look this way in the morning and then as we get into the evening, we may be more tired. So we may want an enhancement for the evening or just compensating for the way light changes. Um, we may want to have some type of enhancement. So it could, there's a time element in all this as well. Yeah, indeed. And, and John, I want to come back to something you said earlier. You, you brought up the circadian issue, right? And so, and I, and we didn't really, we didn't really unpack that. So uh, to say a little bit more about that, you know, more generally beyond color rendering, we're talking about spectral tunability and granular spectral control of light sources. And certainly circadian is another way we do that. You know, so if we take radiation at 480, 490 nanometers, mm -hmm. we might want to either boost that up if we want a biologically mm -hmm. potent light source or extract that out, dim that down, if we want a light source that's going to be less biologically potent. And of course, as we do that, as we like either add or subtract 484, 90 nanometer radiation, um, we are gonna be changing the color rendering properties. But what's interesting is if you have like say a, a five or a, you know, say a five channel LED system, you can in some, to, to a certain degree, you can use other wavelengths to, to kind of counteract that um, by either going shorter or longer mm -hmm. and maintain at some level at least acceptable color rendering quality. Um, but there's always, this is a complex multi-criterion optimization. And so, I mean, one thing that's really interesting to me is like, if you want, say, a certain threshold value, I want my fidelity score to be no less than 75. Okay, now how can I achieve that with... Um, you know, a high biological potency and a low biological right. potency. You know, how, how can right. I, you know, compromise on those different criteria in one spectrally tunable light source? That's asking a lot for a light source and, and <laughs> for a technology. And it, it also compromises awesome. your efficacy as well. But I, but I think, do you think that right now we're at that threshold with solid state lighting that we can compromise efficacy to achieve these quality type of uh, metrics? That's a really good question, Edward. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, I, I think about our planet, planetary health, sustainability, mm -hmm. um, importance of that, but I, I, but I also have to balance that against like human health and how the light that comes into our eyes and renders us like impacts our 
circadian rhythms, our acute alertness, our melatonin suppression, our uh, appreciation of other people that were around, our ability to see their facial yeah. complexion and things like that. And so, I mean, lighting is absolutely critical to our life, as important as air and water. And so, you know, I, I think it's a good question to ask, to what degree should we be chasing lumens per watt? And to what degree should we say, you know, if we're above a certain lumen per watt, but we're getting this additional value added feature that's improving quality of the light, is that worth it? And I, and I think, you know, there's probably different answers for that for different projects. I don't have like a single threshold, um, but but I I really think it's a good question. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, Edward, I'll share I'll share quickly just to wrap up my thoughts because I'm 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 I feel like we could take this. Um, Hey, I, this is what I'm going to say. Kevin, we're going to have you back on as a guest. I don't know when, but but just count on it because this has been so much fun and we got so much more to, to talk about. And, and I'm just going to offer as a closing statement, I want to come back and piggyback on what you just said. Uh, I, I love that line you just shared. The light, you know, light that we receive water. Uh, Edward, you and I have talked about how the conversation, what has driven light and the value of light has been too wrapped around the axle of KWH savings and efficacy for some time. At least the way, you know, our, our backgrounds from utilities and those programs have kind of driven mm -hmm. it. And we know, we know from experience, it's not one example, it's like dozens of examples that when the light moves away, too far away from preference, when we don't pay attention to personal preferences, we totally lose, you know, all the gains that we've made. We, there's a back time to rebuild all that trust. So th this to me just feels uh, so encouraging, even though it's kind of like shining a light on how far we need to go, still have to go. It's very encouraging to think about like, to kind of see that, to see this direction where we're heading and see this emphasis placed back on the value, the personal value and additional values, the value adds that lighting can right. bring. So um, and, and I would say one thing I would, I, I love that, um, you know, everybody deserves good quality light and to be able to tune in to those populations that have been ignored and, 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 and just not even part of the equation. I think that's an amazing opportunity for people. And I think by doing that, I think, you know, again, I pointed to cosmetics and all that, but I think lighting can suddenly, you know, again, add that value beyond what they've typically been doing. So I, I think it's a, an exciting thing. I think about some of the manufacturers of, of quality lamps that are out there, uh, Sora and Ketra and all those wonderful people are doing some really interesting things. I think there's even greater opportunity for, for creating high quality sources, solid state sources that can address this. So I, I think it's a, a very exciting thing, you know. Right on guys. So much more we can well, think, unpack here. But, yeah, there's so much yeah. more, but I think that's where we got to hang it up for now. So listen, I want to thank our guest, Kevin Hauser. Uh, really has been a pleasure. I Speaking for Edward and I, like, man, what a great, what this is exactly what we wanted the show to be. And um, the way that you're able to just like elucidate and share your thoughts in a way that is so uh, like practical and grounded. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's something I love listening to. And I think our, our listeners will too. So thanks for being a guest. Um, Friend Thank of the Kevin. show, we're gonna have you back. Yes, we're gonna, indeed. it's gonna be like SNL. Right How many times <laughs> did you get on? <laughs> right on. I'd love to be back. It'd be fun, guys. Thank you, Edward. And All thank right. You, John. Great. Thank you, Kevin. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. And we'll catch you soon for the next uh, episode of Contrast Ratios. Cheers. Take care. 
contrast ratios is financially supported by the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors. Go to nail.org. Get educated. Get associated. Thank you.